This is the John Oakley Show podcast. There's another Airbnb story. It has serious legal implications. So we've got Global News Radio legal expert Joseph Newberger on the line to uh, help unpack this particular one. Joseph, always a pleasure. Good afternoon. Thanks, John. Nice to hear your voice. So here's a case where uh, somebody discovered uh, a hidden camera in a clock in an Airbnb rental unit. And so uh, the owner of the unit, uh, Mr. Chow, Michael Chow, was charged with voyeurism. Well, it turns out because the individual who discovered the camera invited the police in and the police did not have a warrant, this basically blew the whole case out of the water. Uh, Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does, because the ownership of the property uh, is not the person who is renting it. Although they might be able to give consent for somebody to enter into it, they did not have consent to have the camera removed. So all the police had to do was, once they observed it, would go get a warrant and then execute that warrant uh, properly. Unfortunately, they didn't do that. They went and did a search um, and then seized the item. So it was a warrantless search and then a warrantless seizure. So they would have been far better off to try and get a warrant. Well, all right, so the police officer blew it. Uh, Wouldn't they have known that as a matter of course, though? It seems kind of obvious now that you're explaining it. Yeah, you know, it it is, but I guess there's a bit of confusion as to whether a person who is renting uh, an Airbnb would have sufficient authority to authorize police to both enter and then seize what's there. And, um, you know, there are certain cases where, Police have been able to enter a hotel room, for example, under exigent circumstances and do various things, which are emergency circumstances. In this case, there's no emergency circumstances, and clearly the Airbnb renter does not have the proper authority to grant to come onto the property and then execute the the seizure. So it should be fairly apparent. It's not. You know, it's one of those things that happens, but I think they'll they'll get it right. And there may be some confusion, you know, with respect to Airbnb and who maintains really the authority. And I I think that might explain it. It's unfortunate, but that's what happened. All right. And so just further to that, uh, when the police seized the camera and uh, I guess the videotape and they took a look at it, they realized, oh, there's some stuff being done here on camera, obviously without anybody's foreknowledge. Uh, So that might constitute voyeurism. That's when they slapped the voyeurism charge. But that's after the fact, and you're saying it's negated by the fact they didn't have a warrant. Right, because then once the judge found that there is a breach, um, then it would the admission of the evidence from the search um, be admissible. And the test they use is, would it bring the administration of justice into disrepute? And because the police uh, entered the proper with the uh, property without a warrant and then executed their own steps to seize it and remove it, um, they had a very significant breach of the owner's rights, and therefore the actual video content is excluded from the case. So you know, it's sort of fruit of the uh, forbidden tree, but that's not quite how we do it in Canada. There's more of a balancing, but yes, it was excluded. Well, the police officer's explanation was he was trying to preserve potential evidence. Right, but there is no, there, there is nothing wrong with stepping out you know, taking the taking the uh, information from the tenant or the renter, uh, having an officer posted at the door, and then trying to get a telewarrant, um, which is capable and possible. And so it, it would have been, you know, an hour, a couple hours to do, uh, and they didn't bother doing that. So they're trying to say that they want to preserve evidence that would disappear. I highly, highly doubt that. That doesn't seem feasible. It's not as if they're entering into some property where, there's a hint of a massive drug transaction. Maybe it's going to get flushed. Uh, this person was in possession of the property that they were renting, and I don't think it would have been a great difficulty to get a warrant. 
Well, in getting the warrant now, would it have been important to contact the owner, this Mr. Chow, Michael Chow, uh, get his, uh, let's say, uh, complicity in there uh, that he, no, didn't need that? No, no. No, because what they're doing is they want to do a search of a property and they don't want the owner to take steps before they get there. So it's not unlike a search of a property uh, on an investigation. So let's say the police have information that there's a drug drugs being stored at a particular house. They don't alert the homeowners. What they do is they take all the evidence that they have, put it into uh, an information, provide it with a drafted warrant to uh, an issuing justice, and then get the warrant and then uh, get to the property, secure it, and then execute the warrant. So they could have just simply put together information that they obtained and drafted up a warrant and tried to do this via telewarrant and, and got it. So they would not have to notify the owner, which would probably defeat what they were trying to do. Again, with Global News Radio legal expert Joseph Newberger, got to ask you finally, Bernie Madoff. We all recall Bernie Madoff. Uh, he orchestrated the largest Ponzi scheme in history. Uh, according to court filings, now he's serving 150 years, which is beyond his natural life because I guess he's already in his 70s. Uh, he wants compassionate release from prison. He says he's already done 11 years and is in failing health. Uh, in fact, kidney failure, life expectancy of less than 18 months. He's 81, actually. Uh, would that be something that the uh, the prisons or this is the American system now would take into consideration? Yeah, well, there's an application. And so from what I've read and what little I know about their process, they'll have to look at whether the ends of the incarceration, the purpose of incarceration is still um, achieved by continued incarceration in light of his medical condition, which, um, you know, may be considered to be, uh, you know, not compassionate if you continue his detention in jail. However, uh, on the flip side of this, uh, you know, he was committed to 150 years, and that meant uh, life imprisonment, whether he dies through uh, natural causes, which he is as a result of kidney failure or something else. So I, I, I would be surprised if this application goes very far because the sentence was specific uh, with very limited chance of parole. And, um, you know, there's been some tragedies in his life that's happened uh, to his family, but um, he did a pretty bad thing, which hurt a lot of people and affected their lives forever. And so uh, when you weigh the two out, I mean, I, I think the application will not succeed and he'll continue to serve his sentence until the end of his natural life. Well, 150 years, you see, relative to Canada. Now, we oftentimes look at the states and uh, the things that get meted out. Uh, Jerry Sandusky, you know, for uh, child sexual abuse, gets like 692 years. Uh, here in Canada, until we've had consecutive sentences more recently, uh, it seems like our criminal justice was not that impactful, certainly not in a symbolic way. Uh, do you have an opinion which is one uh, which might be superior one way or the other? Yeah, I think the American system is is really uh, uh, not not a beacon of of, uh, of justice. I really have said many times that I think our Canadian justice system is far superior and one of the best in in, in the world. And um, when people receive life sentences here, the fallacy was that somehow twenty five years to life meant that somebody would automatically get out at 25 years, or if it was a second-degree murder, for example, they could get out at an early parole and eligibility. And that's not true. Many people were held in custody 
way beyond their period of incarceration of, of parole eligibility and are st- still serving life sentences. And there has been the use of dangerous offender legislation. So I, I don't think that by giving some sort of a symbolic sentence of 300 years or 400 or 600 makes any sense. I think it's just silly. Um, I think the sentence has to meet the offense. And in many respects, uh, people do serve out long sentences. Overall, it comes down to whatever the opinion is, whether you like to hear that type of symbolism versus what we have here in Canada. But as you noted, for consecutive homicides, um, there are are ways to have sentences served consecutively. So now you're seeing a 50-year or 75-year sentence. But I'm just going to say this. I know I'm going on a bit long. In many of those cases, these would be individuals who would never receive parole in any event. All right. Uh, well, again, it's high on symbolism. Bernie Madoff, uh, investors lost about $13 billion. So on a pro-rata basis, I guess, you know, you might even say he got off light. Uh, but yeah. he's he's refused dialysis and they've given him uh, about 18 months at the outside to live. So uh, we'll see. He's also applied to Trump to have a sentence commuted, but I don't know if Donald Trump would go that route. Uh, nonetheless, we'll watch and see how this all plays out. Joseph, always great to uh, get you in and explaining the legal matters. Appreciate it again. Thank you so much. Take care and have a great show as usual. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.